Welcome back to On The House from the Hamptons pub in Westminster. I am Sam Jima, parliamentary candidate for Kensington for the Liberal Democrats. You join us during another busy week of the general election campaign. On Tuesday, we witnessed the first one-on-one debate in the history of our democracy between the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition. Are we any closer to knowing whether this election will break us out of the Brexit deadlock? I am flying solo for the first time this week. My co-host Philip Lee will return next week. He was on another podcast recently, Humans of Politics. He said he started learning the piano to cleanse his soul. Well, Philip, we wish you good luck. Our guest this week is David Hennick, the Director of UK Trade Policy Project at the European Centre for International Political Economy. I got acquainted with David via Twitter and his insights are have been tremendously helpful during the complexity of the Brexit debate. He was also a former Assistant Director of UK Trade Policy, so we've been stalking the same halls until quite recently. Since the Brexit referendum, he's become one of the most trusted voices of reason on trade. Yes, it is possible to do so. As Brexiteers ramp up their rhetoric about how quickly we'll secure a trade deal with the EU and how brilliant it will be when we get it. He's recently been consulted on one of the most important trade disputes of the decade, whether we'll be able to get around a ban on foie gras. David, welcome to On The House. Sorry, there's no goose liver. We prefer Nobby's nuts around here. You played a part this week in breaking the story that Brexit could destroy the British egg industry. How did you manage to crack this case? The, the, sto- the story has been around for a, cu- for a couple of months that... Uh, the UK, in the event of no deal, or presumably in the event of leaving with a free trade agreement with the EU, is going to have no tariffs on uh, eggs or egg um, con- powders or egg um, egg liquids or whatever. Now, eggs is, it turns out, that means that we have high standards of animal welfare. Uh, other countries don't. They can potentially produce concentrated egg uh, more, more easily. That then goes into, we make all manner of food and drink products using parts of eggs, and our entire egg industry are, um, are worried that then they'll be uncompetitive and won't be able to export. Just for, for, for our listeners, why, why are eggs important? I mean, is it just, you've just come up with some obscure example to illustrate a rather sort of obscure point. I mean, but what kind of, why, why are eggs important? Start, start, why are we even having this debate? Start with the big picture. Food and drink manufacturing exports are £20 billion a year. Now, that includes all manner of processed foods. I mean, Scotch whisky is a large part of that, but it means includes all manner of processed foods. I was talking last week about ready-meal chicken biryanis on sale in M&S in Paris, but it could also include ca- ca- cakes that we're sending to, uh, to, to Europe. Uh, we're very good at finding new ways to package various foods, fishermen's friends from Fleetwood. All manner of products we sell. At the moment, there are no barriers, obviously, to selling these into the EU. In the event of a no-deal Brexit, there would be tariffs. But even in the event of a deal with the EU, even if we got rid of the tariffs, there are things called rules of origin. What that means is you can't just import something from China, stick a badge on it saying made in the UK and export it to take advantage of the uh, of the zero tariff. You have to prove a certain amount of the product that you're exporting qualifies for a zero tariff. They're not free trade agreements. They're preferential trade agreements. And so... And that's a big difference. But what do you say to the constituent I was speaking to on the doorstep, the voter I was speaking to on the doorstep, who said, I don't understand Brexit. Are prices going to go higher or lower? Can I, 
using your egg example, how do you answer the question for this potential voter that I'm desperately trying to get to vote Liberal Democrat? That's one of the most phenomenally complicated problems in economics, <laughs> to know whether prices will go up or down. The chances are they won't go down. Prices... Uh, according to the leading trade experts I always speak to, prices are what's called downward sticky. Um, people don't like to actually reduce the prices, and our supermarkets are very good, and they already have some of the lowest prices anywhere in the world on food and drink. So the idea prices are going to go down as a result of Brexit, which some have said, seems to be a complete myth. Prices may go up, because if we're importing a lot, and the exchange rate goes down, as it has done, then we'll be paying more. Prices already have been going up to a degree because of that. Um, I should take you on the doorstep with me. But um, you are an expert. And you, you, you shouldn't you... take me doorstepping <laughs> with you if I'm going to give that length of answer. You'd never get away in two hours. Right. But you, you, you are a trade expert. And um, obviously you're welcome um, to the On The House podcast. But you are one of those experts that I think um, when Michael Gove famously declared we've had enough of experts. I mean, he had people like you in his sights, right? All, you, all you're coming up with is doom and gloom about what would happen in the event of Brexit. I know, or facts, as they're sometimes called, because facts are uncomfortable things, that, and, and they don't give you a clean answer. I mean, yeah. I think he, he mostly had people with economic forecasts in mind that tell you it might be 5% or $120 billion or whatever it is. And that's actually, to be fair, those can be easily misused, the, the sort of the big numbers. What we're trying to do, what I've been trying to do, is just provide analysis. Look, this is the way the world works. With the, A trade agreement is like this. The EU is bigger than the UK. Therefore, if we have a trade agreement with the EU, they'll expect more from us than we're going to get from them. That is just practical realities of the world. Yes, I'm afraid that does mean that people say, ah, oh, you're anti-UK if you say that. Well, that's an unfortunate part of the current political debate. But yes... Uh, People who say uncomfortable things to Michael Gove appear to have been the people he had in his sights. So uh, I think it, instead of experts, it's people who say things Michael Gove didn't like. No, I, I agree, and particularly your point that in any trade negotiation, whatever we want will come at a price of whoever we're negotiating wants. And whether it's the US or the European Union, they're much bigger than us. So um, we our negotiating leverage would, significant, would be significantly less than they have. And, but that doesn't seem to really puncture the domestic debate. So we're in the middle of a general election. It's 21 odd days to go. And you have a prime minister going around saying he's going to get Brexit done. So let's, let's play with this hypothetical scenario. Johnson wins a majority and can get his deal through Parliament. What does that actually mean in terms of our trade negotiations? So on January the 31st, let's say, we leave the EU... And on February the 1st, nothing changes whatsoever. And that's quite an important thing to think of. So to the, to the world at large, nothing has changed. Johnson's got Brexit done. And not only that, he's got Brexit done with no pain whatsoever to, to, to anybody. You can still go down to, uh, to, to France and bring back large amounts of red wine if that's what you want to do. Or you can still t trade seamlessly. Pro problem comes then in terms of the negotiations. So then any agreement beyond that reduces the level of access or puts in place barriers that, that, um, that aren't there at the moment. So gradually things that we take for granted perhaps disappear. Suddenly you, you start getting checks at um, uh, Calais or you can't take your pet down, to, uh, down on, on, on your driving holiday down to, uh, down to France or various, you can't sell um, services, you can't travel for business meetings to, into, into, into Europe. These are all the things that will get discussed in 
trade negotiations. Johnson's given himself this deadline of December 2020. Well, if I'm the EU thinking well, he's given himself this, this deadline f for a timescale that has never been achieved by the EU in a trade agreement, I'm thinking he's got the timescale, not us, so I'll just put something in front of him and I'll force him to uh, to sign. And if I'm really nasty, I say that's what we did in the, uh, in the withdrawal agreement as well, as he gave himself an October 31st deadline, so then he had to accept something that he'd previously rejected, i.e. A, a Northern Ireland uh, solution. I, I think the, the how deadlines work in the Brexit negotiations is something that's underexplored, that throughout the Brexit process, the UK has been hostage to the fact that we have lashed ourselves to the master deadlines, right? So we triggered Article 50 before we had a plan. That means that we had two years within which to negotiate a deal. In fact, we triggered Article 50 before we understood that we would be negotiating the future after we had um, come out of the EU. And that meant that the clock was always ticking on us. And again, even if Johnson gets his withdrawal agreement through Parliament, the clock will be ticking again. And that fact means that we are always at a negotiating disadvantage because not only have would um, the Brexiteers have made promises they can't deliver, but they would have made these promises that they will have to be negotiating against the clock. And I think that point has not been properly or widely understood by many commentators. I an awful lot of these things have not been widely understood and I'm, I'm fascinated to know from a politician's uh, viewpoint how you actually communicate about trade because I spent three years before doing anything on Brexit on EU-US negotiations, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership and we got slaughtered in the press on a daily basis. I was in, I was in government at the time and it was, seemed really difficult to get a political message over simply about trade. Well, we're just going into that again now where we're giving ourselves a few months. I don't think people realise that this is everybody's business. Every company in the country could be affected by what gets negotiated. Nine months, in nine months, the businesses might only just have discovered what it is they, they need from a trade deal. Get this wrong and you put people out of work needlessly get it right and maybe you have new ad new advantages normally that's what takes the time is you've got to work out for every issue what is it that we need to achieve what is it we want to achieve what will protect exports support jobs in in a, in a trade deal whereas we're treating it like a sort of race oh you know how how can we get this done fast well perhaps the right question is how can we do this right well, but that raises the issue that the politics of this is so detached from the reality of trade negotiations. And um, I haven't seen any advanced economy that whose entire trading future is sort of on the block in the way that Brexit would put our entire trading future and relationships on the block, having to start from scratch. So at some point, the reality has got to um, intrude on this kind of um, get Brexit done dream that uh, Johnson is selling the electorate. When does that happen? Well, it could be a while, um, because it could be that you blame everything on the EU from here on in for the next few years and say, we would have had that great deal, but the EU blocked us from having that great deal. So you come back to experts again. Those pesky experts were, t were, uh, were, were, were telling us that what they were telling us was wrong. It was actually all the EU's fault. When does that reality come in? Look, I'm really interested in theoretical point of view. What happens to the political narrative after after Brexit? It's all Brexit, Brexit, get Brexit done at the moment. What happens then if we do if we do leave? What's the do we start actually talking about 
the bigger picture of, well, what's going to happen to the country? Or do we forget about all of this and just sort of bump, bump, bump along? Um, I don't know, therefore, when reality sets in. Do we get into a big grind behind the scenes of negotiation that ultimately goes on for years and years and years, never really satisfactory concludes, and it takes years as well for politi- politicians to actually want to talk about Europe ever again, at which point some people might start saying, hang on a minute, maybe we, maybe we were missold. In Salford on Tuesday night, Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn met for the first debate of the election campaign. Joe Swinson and SNP leader Nicola Sturgeon weren't invited and lost their legal challenge against ITV for them to be included. Minutes before the debate was due to begin, Tottenham sacked their manager and they hired Jose Mourinho less than 24 hours later. So we don't think Corbyn or Boris is the special one. But who do we think came off better during this debate? So, like a lot of things, I pick it up uh, second hand. I was um, deeply engrossed in discussions about trade minutiae on Tuesday night and wasn't actually able to watch the debate, so I get it second hand. And the first thing I pick up second hand is lots of doom and gloom. Oh, God, this was terrible. What a, what a, what a it choice. It was always for the going country. to be terrible. <laughs> the second thing was well, how, how do you define winning and losing? It appears that. Of the comments of the entirely random selection of people I follow on social media and news seem to be roughly 50-50. Well, that suggests that Corbyn did better because, frankly, most of the time, very few people seem to have a good word about him. Therefore, he seemed to have, he seemed to have done better than from a very low base. Um, in terms of any content, nobody now, this is Thursday, nobody now is talking about anything that was mentioned in the debate on Tuesday. So that suggests that it was a... Jose Mourinho special, a no-score draw. I mean, I, I, I think this is a classic sort of good telly, isn't it? I mean, the, the broadcasters wanted it this way because they thought it's good telly, they can say it's a head-to-head, it's the first time it's ever happened, but I don't think it's, it lit up the election race in any way other than the fact that the Conservative Party got into some hot water after um, Conservative um, Party HQ's Twitter account was rebranded as Fact Check UK. I mean, that takes some doing. Um, was this something we could have ever imagined would have happened five years ago in British politics? Out in out in the sort of serious future-looking world where people uh, worry about what it, what things will be like in the future, they're really worried about actually deep fakes where you can actually. Uh, mock up somebody saying something they never said. Now, this is one step before that. No, a, a political party should never do that, but we don't actually have rules on uh, modern, modern media, how elections are run, um, and we have, we have some real problems in that area. But I do wonder, you know, there's a lot of talk on all the social media about things like the Conservative Party mock-up and... Um, about the, the varying, you know, about trade deals or whatever. I do wonder how much of this social media is a bit of a bubble and how much out in the country nobody's really listening anymore. I wonder, you know, are, are people... Have, has anything much changed in this election since it started two or three weeks ago? Well, we, we will know. We, we will know. But I, I think when people say, oh, you know, when... And I think some Conservative ministers said that, or Dominic Raab said, you know, this is part of the current thrust of Twitter and the country's not paying attention. 
But I think if you have a party that is willing to do this, they could be doing it in so many other ways. I mean, the internet is vast. Who knows what adverts are being pumped into people's news feeds on Facebook that I may not see, you may not see, other people may not see because they are not the target audience. And so I, I think, for me, I, I think the casual attitude to truth and use of misinformation techniques, disinformation techniques, is a very worrying development in British politics because if you can't trust political parties with actually just being straight with your own information, I mean, what does that mean for having a government on those along those lines? I, it, it absolutely, you're absolutely right, of course. I'm just commenting that it's a weird election campaign and the fact that there are some serious issues but I'm not sure they're being discussed uh, broadly in the country, those serious issues. And this is one of the serious issues, how political debate is conducted in this country. There's a whole serious issue about the future of the country. I'm just not actually wholly convinced that's what the election is turning out to be about. And that is worrying in itself. Yes, I mean, this should be a high-stakes election. It should be an election that is not about politics as usual. But it feels like most people have reached for the leverage file marked general election and are behaving like this is the 2015 general election when it's pretty much business as usual. This is how we run elections and, you know, this is how we ask questions from the point of view of the media. When the consequences of this, if you were end up with a hard left or a hard Brexit government, would actually really change the country for a very long time. I, I will comment. And I think the interesting thing about hard Brexit versus hard left is not that's not the manifestos. They could easily be interpreted as hard Brexit or hard left. But is that actually what's going to happen? I mean, I glanced through Labour's manifesto today and de determined it to be a hodgepodge of things. And really, to be honest, I was wondering where my copy was saying exactly how much money I got out of it. Yeah, there must have been a pledge there that you got. It's like, like, some that, money that, for me. Somewhere. That, 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 some money for you somewhere. Free Wi-Fi. Mm, I don't know. And with hard Brexit, yes, you can interpret Boris Johnson as heading for hard Brexit. Um, but the level of trust that you could have in what he says, given all the things he's already said over, over three months, is that I do wonder whether it's actually going to be... It could be hard Brexit. I mean, I think there's a, there's a bigger question here, is that from a Conservative point of view, if this is an election of slogans, unless we actually see any substance, I have no idea how the Conservatives plan to run the economy, public services or whatever, that they... What, what is it? We're going to get Brexit done. That's it. Yes, yes, we're, tra we're trading in slogans. And th that's a really uh, good way to put it. But you can't really trade in slogans when you're talking about the Irish Sea. I mean, Johnson lied about the border down the Irish Sea, which is in his Brexit deal. I mean, is there any lie he tells which is going to have an, an effect on his approval numbers? It doesn't appear so. And look, we should also be worrying about Ireland and the future of the uh, of the UK, because... We, si we sign up to a deal. Nobody wants it to be scrutinised. Sorry, nobody wants it to be scrutinised. His own party, um, who um, wants to support Bre Brexit, just say, "Oh, get get it get it done with." This could have long term impact on the on the country, and it's like being swept swept under under the carpet. So we're going to have checks. We are going to have checks on trade between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, but we're not allowed to really have that discussion. Oh, and by the way, that might mean Scotland. Uh, yeah, you know, increase, increasing support for independence in Scotland, but 
let's not talk about that. Let's not let them have a referendum and hopefully it'll all go away. I mean, this is, <laughs> this is yeah. serious don't, don't, stuff. Don't, don't let your reality intrude on the Brexit dream. I'm oh, sorry about that. I'm, I, I'm keep doing this, don't I? I'm not, yes. I'm, I, I wasn't cut out for politics. Somebody told me that. In fact, many people have told me that. And, and this, this analogy that Johnson has come out with, you know, the oven-ready analogy for his Brexit deal. I mean, you've previously said the 31st of October deadline was never realistic. I, I thought so. In fact, I remember writing a piece in June, July saying, what's your plan B if you can't deliver um, on the 31st of October because you can't negotiate a new deal? What I hadn't realised was that Johnson would negotiate a new deal that was worse than the previous deal, and that was his plan B. But um, is this new deadline, and you've touched on it a bit, but let's let's just explore it for a second on the 31st of January, realistic in any way. You won't have much scrutiny. I mean, it's it, the level of scrutiny to which this treaty has gone through is ridiculously low. There's no full study, and I once tested, in terms of the Irish protocol, whether anybody had read and understood the whole thing, because it has 50 pages of legislative acts put in the back of the UK shall abide with it by this or Northern Ireland shall abide by this, no one's read and understood it all. This will be, um, there will be things in there we'll be talking about for years to come. So, yes, you can get it through, but you won't understand it in full, as we've already discovered in the fact that ministers have different views on what it means for Northern Ireland, Great Britain trade. And the same will apply to the next stage. Do you want to do this properly so that we understand what we're signing up for? Or do you want to just sign up for anything and then in, in years to come work out, oops, that wasn't what we meant to sign up for? We already seen that, you know, Parliament voted to trigger Article 50 to get Brexit done, in a sense. And um, we now realise, I think it's one of the votes that I regret. I regret it because I voted to trigger Article 50, not really knowing what was going to come afterwards. And there was no plan. Everyone assumed someone had a plan somewhere for what the future meant. And there was no plan. Yes. And I, I was still in government at that time. And I remember thinking... We're surely not going to... I wasn't part of this decision. I thought we're surely not going to trigger this until we've had some pre-negotiations. That's what you would normally do in such situations. You have some pre-negotiations that actually uh, kind of lay out what, how it's all going to work and make sure you don't get trapped. We didn't do that. We went gung-ho straight into it, and it looked wrong at the time. What I'm really worried about is, again, we haven't actually learned those lessons and said, OK, next time, when we do this again with the future trade agreement... We will say, this is what went wrong, so this is what's going to happen next time. I don't think I've ever heard anybody from government say anything of that sort. No, no, we don't learn lessons. You blame people for your failures. That's what's happening in this process. Um, but you have said a three-year transition until the end of 2022 is the most sane option for the government. But is there any chance they will agree to that? I think there's definite possibilities that the deal that starts emerging at the end of 2020, I could just about see a deal emerging at the end of 2020 it's not really a trade deal, it's more a kind of continuity for another two years deal (laughs) it's a deal Boris Johnson achieves what he said he would achieve but just by kicking the cat, finding an inventive way to kick the can, bear in mind the EU um, is also quite good at kicking the can as well. I mean, one of the things that's the been, EU's not averse to a bit of fudgerama. One of the things that's been interesting off the um, it, th- this this week away from the election campaign is that among uh, scholars of EU UK relations there was an article by Anand Menon which caused a, a a real stir in which he said oh the EU did these things. Um 
and there was there was a kind of huge huge argument among such such people but you know you realize at that point we do tend to think of the eu in rather cartoonish terms either they've been good throughout they've been bad throughout look the eu are perfectly capable of finding creative ways to take another 10 years to do all of this On the ITV debate, Johnson and Corbyn were asked what they would like to put under each other's Christmas tree. We can think of something good for them both, the Liberal Democrat Manifesto. The key strategies outlined include increasing our renewable energy generation to 80% by 2030, providing free childcare from nine months, and of course, stopping Brexit, the policy which adorns the cover of the document. David, we've also made a pledge to legalise cannabis. If we manage that, we could record a very different episode of On the House Indeed. If we liberalise drug laws, how would it affect the UK economy? Well, I'm not an expert in drugs. <laughs> I don't know what you mean by that, by the way. Yeah. Um, actually, you, you're one a novice? Most, you one of the, obviously, one of the great growth areas in uh, in trade, in, in particularly Canada and the US, or in the economy, is, uh, is, ca- is cannabis. There's a whole story, there's huge amounts of money going into, um, in, into cannabis now in the US, in Canada. So... Um, yeah, it could, it, could, it could make an economic difference. It's not entirely clear that that's compatible, though, with various international laws in terms of trade. And so trade in, in, uh, in cannabis is a slightly grey area as far as I understand I, it. I thought you would have an encyclopedic knowledge of the, the, the tariff figures for cannabis I trade. I don't think as an illegal drug. I'm not sure that there are <laughs> any tariff figures uh, there, but there's a big, there is a big, big, big point here that... Um, Trade is so huge. Anything can be traded. Anything can be traded. That nobody's an expert on everything. So you like to say trade expert. Trade expert, one of my colleagues once said, he said, we're one Google search ahead of you in terms of trade. We know some <laughs> stuff. But no, I don't know the uh, the tariff on cannabis. But, uh, you know. This, I, this could be what the Brexiteers mean by I, new markets. I, I gather That they, could actually lead to a bright future for our country. I gather the Lib Dems were the sort of business favourites. I gather Joe Swinson went to the CBI conference and they kind of laughed at Boris Johnson, rolled their eyes at Jeremy Corbyn, and they had a bit of a love in with uh, Joe Swinson at the CBI conference this week. Well, she, she got a fantastic reception. And um, I, I think the whole point about Liberal Democrats being the natural party of business, again, is something that hasn't been explored fully. I mean, I've, I've run in three Conservative Party general elections, and by this stage in the general election, you know, page five of the Conservative Party general election manual will be get 50 businessmen to write to the Times to say the Conservatives are the party of business and job creation. If you don't vote for them, you're going to lose your job. Nothing so far. Because the Conservative Party has turned its back on business. And Liberal Democrats, not just because of stopping Brexit, but actually talking about fiscal competence and talking about um, balanced budgets, are the party that are closest to business. And the Conservatives are throwing the economic cards up in the air, Labour doesn't really care. I don't get free money from the Liberal Democrats. You, you don't get free money. The Remain bonus, um, which is core to how we're going to fund public services, um, is something that has been carefully costed. The IFS said it's a fair assessment. But the uncertainty, if there is a, um, such a thing as that, with the Lib Dem um, proposals, is on the upside. Because if we do remain there is a, in the EU, there's a lot of upside. 
Whereas if we leave, certainly on the terms that Nigel Farage thinks Boris Johnson will be leaving, it's all downside for us. So there's a couple of really interesting points here. One, investment has been falling in the UK because of uncertainty. 2020 is another year of uncertainty. Who can really put in a long-term investment in 2020 when you don't know the nature of the relationship by the end of 2020? That's a really important point. A second one, I have been struck. I spent a lot of time with businesses. And yes, the business Conservative Party relationship is fraying. And what does that mean then for the next stage of negotiations? Are the Conservatives approaching this still as claiming to be a party of business and we're putting business first in these negotiations? Or are they going to be not putting business first when thinking about trade negotiations? You know, what, what are we considering as our major issues? It seems to me the Conservative Party's character and identity is changing, and I have no idea what that means for the next stage of Brexit negotiations. But it's something I, I, people should be talking about. I don't think the party knows either, but the party is able to or pretend it's riding two horses because on the other side is Jeremy Corbyn, the boogeyman. So, so long as Jeremy Corbyn is there, the Conservative Party can pretend that it's still the party of economic competence. But that's only relative versus Jeremy Corbyn, whereas actually it's the Liberal Democrats that are straining every senior to be economically competent, to have numbers that add up, and to uh, have promises that are deliverable. And this is what we should be telling the electorate. And you are on brand. You have a yellow microphone cover there as well. So this is this is fully on brand for the Liberal Democrats. Now, um, there's always there's always something yellow in my car these days. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I can I can see that. But no, I mean I think that I'm interested to see what will happen in London and the southeast where. I am picking up from random apolitical groups that I hang out with who, if they talk about the election at all, are specifically mentioning Liberal Democrats and are saying pretty much what you just said. So my experience in, of talking to people in London, my experience of people talking to people outside of London is not quite the same as that. Um, I'm very interested to see what the results will be and then to see what the, the follow-up will be to all of this because I, I, I think it's a fascinating... Well, the Financial period. Times put Joe Swinton on the front page last week. I think it's probably one of the few newspapers that's going to put Liberal Democrat on the front page. Um, the, well, I, I gather George Osborne, London Evening, the Evening Standard. George Osborne says he might vote for you. He's one of your constituents. Of course, of course. You know, I I, 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 I am a good campaigner, <laughs> if I say so myself. No, it's it's, it's um it's very interesting what, what is happening. Um, George Osborne said... Uh, said you know, he's considering voting for me, but I do have a relationship with him. When I was a parliamentary private secretary to David Cameron, um, we had these 8.30 and 4pm meetings every day. And George Osborne was in those meetings. So Monday to Friday, I was in Downing Street with George Osborne in meetings. So we know a bit of each other. And, um, you know, he's he's always been a Conservative, so we'll see how that vote shapes up. But um, I also got Tim Sainsbury, who was a Conservative MP for 23 years. Um, He was there. um, He was a trade minister. And uh, he's come out to not only endorse me, but also to say he's supporting the Liberal Democrats with a substantial donation. So your point about what what does the Conservative Party stand for and how it evolves here, one thing that we do know is that there are some Conservatives that are uneasy with this move um, to sort of ev- evolution into a nationalist populist party under Boris Johnson, that is happening. And I'm seeing that on the doorsteps every day. 
Yes, and I, as I say, and I don't know what it means for the next stages of Brexit. And that's, you know, I think the Conservative Party will be split in the next stages between those who are wanting a very hard Brexit, representing the get Brexit done and nothing else matters camp. Um, and I think that will have worrying economic implications, and I've said that many a time. And then the camp that still thinks the Conservatives are the party of business, which will be trying to take a, will be trying to say, right, we've got Brexit done now, let's now go back to normal and now try to build a close relationship with the EU. That is going to be an interesting thing to watch. They've all signed the no-deal pledge, though. Every Conservative MP has signed the pledge. A, a candidate, sorry, has signed the pledge that, you know, they would accept no deal, so they can't walk away from that. No, yeah, indeed, they will, but we'll, we'll, see, we'll see what happens. I, I had an interesting uh, idea that would, would be a very interesting result, not for you, necessarily, would be a Conservative majority of one. That would be a fascinating result of how to keep your party in, in line if you only had a majority of one. <coughs> well, I, and Boris Johnson losing his seat, <laughs> some would say. But before we wrap up today's show, I would like to pick your brain a little bit more about the ins and outs of the trade post-Brexit or possibly post-no-Brexit. If you're a UK trade envoy at the moment, you must be working flat out. You've got a plan for the opposition getting into power and you'll be considering the con- contingencies for Boris Johnson's deal or no deal or another extension. Um, you have pointed out if we Brexit as a third country, our opinion matters less than the least powerful member of the EU 27. Is it really how far we've sunk? Is there any coming back from it from a nego- from that as a negotiating perspective? I think the comeback for the UK is that businesses increasingly are thinking they're just going to have to get on and do trade and many of them are very good at doing their at at exports and they will go off and carry on doing that and basically not rely on the government helping them terribly much um and you know there is every chance that we will lose certain amounts of business we saw a loss of the the tesla in potential tesla investment during the uh the, the the week it's going to be tough times but there's an awful lot of really great uk exporters out there and we should celebrate that as well I'm worried they won't get much support, but you know many of them will get on and just get on and do it, and we would like to see that, wouldn't we? We both like to see that. Yeah. So, all right. Name your fantasy team of Brexit negotiators. Fantasy team of Brexit negotiators. Okay, the most impressive negotiator I came across during the whole Brexit process was the Prime Minister of Gibraltar, Fabian Picardo, because I was in a few uh, meetings. Fabian, he's he's a. Uh, and he always cookie. knew at each negotiating meeting what he actually wanted out of it. And I thought, you know, I want this. I would like this guy to be actually doing the uh, the negotiations. But I think you just need it's a, it's as much an approach about the individuals. The individuals bond actually with their with with their counterparts. Actually, it's about negotiating your own party and your own side. So you need somebody who's really good at negotiating with their own side. I don't know who that might be, but it will be a it would be it would be a, a, a politician who is very good at kind of covering the base i tell you who was really good at this i saw him in action a few years ago ken clark superb at sort of working with you know talking having meetings with different business groups and different politicians but you need somebody of that caliber and sticking to the reality of course i understand you've drafted two articles for after the election one where johnson wins a majority and one where he doesn't right now which one do you see as the most likely 
So, I no, these are, these are the ones I'm going to draft, the one that says, um, as I predicted, Johnson win, won, and as I predicted, Johnson didn't win. <laughs> <laughs> At the moment, well, I... Uh, I'm not close enough to know what's actually still three going weeks on. To go. But three and a half weeks to I go. I think that business is increasingly preparing for a Johnson majority because if that happens, they need to move very quickly. Whereas actually, if Corb- if Johnson doesn't win, then um, you know we w- it will take a little time to form a government. I think. Okay. Thank you, David. It's the end of the podcast. We always end by asking what we are looking forward to for the coming weekend. Unlike Aaron Banks, we wouldn't be spending thousands of pounds for tea with Pretty Patel, allegedly. Um, David, what are your plans for the weekend? Are you taking leverage files home to study or do trade papers stay in the office till Monday? Uh, weekend is kids' time uh, no- normally, so it'll it'll involve the kids and it won't involve reading uh, trade uh, treaties, though. I have been known to read those of uh, of, of, of a weekend, and sin- since we're on an informal podcast, I will be hoping that uh, my hometown team, the not-at-all-mighty Lancaster City, progress in the FA Trophy. Good luck to uh, Lancaster City. As an Arsenal fan, I can stomach my Lancaster City doing well, and um, although I'm not very excited about Jose Mourinho at Spurs um, but this weekend Pochettino for Arsenal that's people have been discussing people that. have been discussing it well we might need a change of manager soon I'm going to be campaigning flat out between now and December the good 12th luck. so it's goodbye and that's the end of this week's edition of On the House we'll be back next week for another pint after the political week make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcast app in the meantime thanks to David Hennick and from me Sam Jima we will see you next week On the House was presented by Sam Jima. Audio production and scripting was by me, Alex Reese. The producer is Andrew Harrison. On the House is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.